One, two, we're good. Thank you, uh, Ian, for the reading. We haven't met before. My name's Stuart Starr. I'm the lead pastor here, and it is great to have you with us as we uh, continue our series in the book of Isaiah. It's, uh, it's, been a, um, it's been a good journey. We're learning lots about God that probably won't turn up if you're just always reading about Jesus. Uh, we love Jesus. We're going to get onto him. We're going to spend lots of times, time looking at Jesus uh, over the course of uh, our preaching. But it's really good to go to parts of the Old Testament where we find out some more information about who our God is. And uh, we're going to be doing exactly that uh, today. I'm going to pray for us uh, that we might be uh, open to what God would teach us, that we might be changed and challenged by his word. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this precious time now in our week where we can sit under your word. I pray, Father, that you might open our hearts. Challenge us, Father, with what your word says. Change us, Father, so that we might live more in accord with that word and that, Father, we might please you more and more. Be at work this morning by your Holy Spirit, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All righty, well, I thought I might... um, I thought I might start with a, um, a little story about me. Um, I had a problem. I uh, it was many years ago now. How many years ago? Almost 10 years ago, I think. I'd finished theological college uh, and was looking for a job. And uh, I'd, I'd left a good job to go to theological college. At college, I'd had the great pleasure of uh, getting married, which was fantastic. So now I was responsible for somebody else, my, my beautiful wife. And uh, we're coming up to the end of four years of study. And I'm thinking, I'm going to need to get a job to look after this wonderful wife of mine and be able to put all the things that I've been learning into practice. So we had lined up an opportunity uh, to go to... Uh, fig tree uh, down in Wollongong. Now, some of you heard something about this before. So I went down there on a mission trip midway through the year, actually towards the start of the year, and we had a great time, and they said, we would love to talk to you about a job. I'm like, this is all working out very well. Anyway, it came to about the middle of the year, and we had some interviews. Um, Myself and some other people had interviews, and uh, it all seemed to be progressing along pretty well, and I thought, this, this, is looking, this is looking good. And then it got to about, might have been about August, so towards the end of my studies, about to finish up, and I uh, got a call back from the, uh, from the church saying, uh, thank you so much for your application. We really like uh, you know, what you offer, um, but we've decided to offer the job to somebody else. Now, at that point, uh, I had a problem because I hadn't been looking at any other churches I wasn't connected like other people are with lots of churches all over the place. I'd stayed in one church the whole time through my my time at college, and it was a little tiny church. Actually, funnily enough, our church is probably bigger than that church. Uh, Now, it was a tiny church. So I used to preach at an evening service where there'd be 30 people at it. And uh, I didn't have any other connections. And when I got this phone call, Kara and I were really rocked. And uh, we went to this place, Uh, it looks beautiful in this picture here, Um, Nielsen Park. Uh, And the reason we went there, first of all, it was beautiful. Um, It was a place that we'd got engaged, so it was a special place to us. And we went and sat on a chair here, looking up the harbour, and and we just poured our hearts out and just said, 
God, we've got nothing. If this has fallen through, I don't have another line of inquiry. I don't have any other relationships. I don't, I'm not in an interview process anywhere. I have absolutely nothing. I, we're, we're out. And where I think I'd kind of been trusting on the fact that it seemed to be heading in a good direction and I was reasonably qualified for the job and I thought it's going along well, when that fell through, it was exposed to me that I hadn't been really trusting God for the job. I'd just been kind of figuring it would work out. And now here we were, my wife and I, sitting on the, on the bench seat going, we've got nothing. All we've got is you, God. You've taken away everything that we thought we were able to rely on. We've got nothing else. It's just you and us. And I, I want to say that Carolyn cried and I didn't. I'm not sure I cried. I do remember Carolyn cried. And we just said, God, you've got to come, come through with something. It was a moment of realisation that what we've been trusting in wasn't going to work anymore. And the only place that we could be absolutely assured was in God's hands. So we prayed and cried and talked to God. And the guy who got the job offer turned it down. And they gave me a call and said, do you want the job? Now, does every story work out like that? No. It doesn't always work out like that. But it was wonderful that when we cast ourselves completely on God, we had everything else, our own trust, our own dependency removed, he was faithful. And what I want to think about today, where do you turn when everything falls away? Where do you turn? You know, I'll tell you one more story because that one makes me sound like I did the right thing. At the moment, uh, I've got two two kids who I love to bits. Um, I'm sure that there's a... um, In fact, I heard somebody say that they had a a tax every time their parents mentioned them in a sermon. Like, was that you, Jen? Yeah, it was you. Um, every time the dad mentioned uh, them in the sermon, they actually got paid money because they weren't allowed to be used as illustrations. But anyway, I have two kids. They'll remain nameless. And uh, <laughs> we've had some behaviour recently where I thought we'd figured everything out. And we had some behaviour recently where I've gone, I honestly don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. We've, we've tried this strategy and this strategy and this strategy and this strategy. I thought I was relying on the fact that I'm a good parent, that I was experienced, that I'd done lots of things now, and all of a sudden I found all of those things kicked away and I'm left going, I don't know what to do. And so where do I turn? To a book and to Google. Is that right? <laughs> Somebody save me. Give me some help. And it occurred to me, when I was really at the end... I was going, actually, I I don't think I've prayed about this. I'd actually turn to other things than God. And what I want us to think about today is where do you turn when everything gets kicked away? When the things that we're trusting in don't prove trustworthy, where do you turn? We're going to have a look at what happened to Israel and we challenged ourselves to think about that. You know, Israel had a problem. Israel had a problem. You've seen... uh, Matt's map and my map, and you you get the idea. We're learning the geography here. Uh, Here's Judah down here, Israel here. And Assyria, this big massive superpower, was going to come and squash them. They, in their problem time, turned here to Egypt. They said, if there's a superpower challenging us, what can we do? We'll look to the people who might be able to match up 
and come back strongly against them. We'll make an alliance with people down in Egypt. Where did they turn under pressure? They turned to the obvious, to the strong, and to what was right in front of them. It didn't work out so well. What were the symptoms that the people of Israel had turned away from God? What were the symptoms that were showing that they were basically failing in what God had called them to do? Well, here's, uh, here's a disease here. Uh, we've got measles up there and a big waiting room. I've seen the inside of some waiting rooms recently. Uh, a waiting room. I want to go, you see, you can treat at one level the top, the top. And we can think, oh, all you need to do is, um, is just change your life, get a little bit more organized and everything will come good. Uh, go to a parenting class, everything will come good. But it's not on the surface that the problem is. There's actually a disease that's inside that looks like this. And if you put band-aids on the measles, guess what? You're not solving the disease. God looks through and sees the problem in the people of Israel. Have a look with me. We're going to do some, uh, some Bible reading today. And uh, it will be very, very helpful if you have it open. So if you can open your Bibles up to Isaiah 29. Uh, it's on page, uh, verse 13 um, is on page 707. And what I want you to do is have a look with me. So we're going to go basically this double page and the next double page. We're going to be going over over the period of this sermon. So if you can have it open, you'll, you'll jump around with me and we'll see this description of the disease. Have a look in verse 13. The Lord says, so chapter 29, verse 13, page 707. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. What had happened was Israel had turned their relationship with the living God into a mere religion. Now, it's not to say that being religious or doing the things that God had told them was wrong. But they'd stopped bringing their hearts and they were putting their carcasses in a seat and mouthing things to God and he was saying, you come near to me with your lips but you leave your hearts with your idols, with the things that you trust, with the things that you truly love. You do not engage with me. That was the first symptom. The second is a little bit later in verse 15. Have a look down just below it. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? It's a good moment to stop, isn't it? There's a certain irony in us thinking that we can trick God by being secret. If we have the right picture of God, he's in charge of the universe, right? And maybe you think that, I don't know, he's short-sighted. And so when he's sitting back looking after the whole universe, he couldn't possibly be paying attention to an individual life. But God is a God who spins the galaxies, sustains the atoms. He knows your heart. You heard Jesus say he knows the hairs on your head. Now, that's a trivial piece of information. If he knows how many hairs you have, imagine what he knows about your motives, about your plans, about the things that you care about. Do not think that the way you act will be in secret from the living God. It won't be. He knows. 
Israel thought that they could get away with doing things under the radar from the living God. It was a symptom that they'd forgotten who he was. Isaiah 30, flip the page over, have a look with me at verses 1 to 2. Further diagnosis. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. See, they were doing it secretly. They thought, we'll just send a little sneaky envoy down to Egypt to start the process of making a a treaty with them so they can come and help us. God won't see. And here's God, through his prophet, saying, woe to you obstinate children. That's the outside voice. Um, Woe to you obstinate children who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance. See, I see you. I'm watching Israel and I see you. I can see what you're doing. You are turning to Egypt. It's not in secret and it won't work. Your salvation does not lie with Pharaoh. In fact, can anyone remember any of the history with Pharaoh in Egypt? Anyway, some of you can and you're chuckling. Yes, that's where they were enslaved for 400 years, yeah? It's fairly ironic for God's people to be turning away from him and towards their former slave drivers. Isaiah 39 to 11, a little bit further on. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instructions. They say to the seers, listen to this, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. I don't want you to keep putting God in my face. Just stop it. I don't want to know about the Holy One of Israel. I'm trying to plot and plan and scheme here my own secret sinful plan. Don't don't keep putting God in my face. It's interesting, isn't it? The symptom is, stop telling us about God, not I'll stop doing evil. I can't hear you, I can't hear you. I can't see you. It's, it's, It's a child game, isn't it? Please, prophet, don't speak God's holy word to me because I don't want to know it. And back to verse 16 of chapter 29. Flip back a page. I'll tell you why this is the last one. I put it last, not in order, because I think this is the one that's right at the heart of it. Have a listen to verse 16. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? What's supposed to to be the answer to that question? Is it a trick question? The answer is supposed to be no, isn't it? No, no, it's not. No, it's not right. So here we've got pots saying to the potter, you did not make me. 
Why would Israel rebel? Why would they turn away from the living God? Because they've decided, God, you're not involved in this. I'm my own autonomous person. I operate free from you. I'm a pot that just spontaneously came into being. Interestingly enough, how did God make the first human being? From the dust of the earth, wasn't it? If any illustration could possibly make it, you know, God literally formed Adam from the dust of the earth is the idea, yeah? That's the description in Genesis. Can the pot, can the made human say to the maker, you didn't make me? What's the answer supposed to that be? No, you can't say that. And yet we can and we do, don't we? We can and we do. A while ago, I read um, Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. And Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, if you don't know who he is, famous atheist, he's a biologist, okay? His whole project is to show through evolution that God is not necessary. Can we say to that, in fact, he turns it on the head. Remember it says here, you turn things upside down. He turns it on the head and said, people invented God and we have no need for this hypothesis anymore. I can show you how the world works without God. No need for him. So how does God have any claim on me if he didn't make me? The answer is he doesn't have any claim at all, does he? Just quietly, if you're wondering, Dawkins is wrong. And on top of that, the biggest flaw, the biggest flaw for these things is, (laughs) where did life come from? Where did life come from? And that the, in all the genius of Richard Dawkins in his bio, biology, incidentally, he's quite good at biology, he's terrible at theology. He should stick to his chosen field, in my humble opinion. Richard Dawkins, he, this is his, so he says, I don't know exactly how life came about. I can show you that maybe it got more complex over billions of years. That's his, that's his take, right? But the, here's how he explains it. He says, if you believe in God, your problem is infinite regression. Who made God? If God was made by somebody else, who made that person? Who made that person? Who made that person? Who made that person? He says, you can't prove it. It's stupid. But here's what he says. Life came to Earth. This was his best guess. Life came to Earth on an asteroid. And I'm like, guess who's got the problem with infinite regression? Where did that life come from? That's not an answer. That's a cop-out. That's only half a thought. Life came from somewhere else on an asteroid. Yeah, great. Where did that come from? Oh, another asteroid? Well, who's got the problem now? Can the potter say to the pot, I made you, yes. Can the pot say to the potter, you didn't make me? No, wrong way around. The other way that you get the, uh, the pot saying to the potter, you didn't make me, is in this scenario here. Angry children disowning their parents, yeah? You're not my parent anymore. You, didn't, you don't have any right over me. And what's the problem with that argument? Like me, dislike me, want a new one, want to trade me in, guess what? I'm your parent. It's very unfortunate. You can commiserate with um, my beautiful children later. But we do this. We do this. We say to God, we don't need you, I'm going my own way. In anger and frustration. The ultimate sin of Israel is to say to God that he no longer had a rightful place as their creator in their lives. And it was a travesty. So what's prescribed? If that's their disease, that's the disease at their heart, what does God say 
they need to do. Well, I don't know if you picked up this theme. Matthew's been showing it to us as he's been preaching. I've been trying to do the same thing. In, in Isaiah, we see judgment and salvation right next to each other. Judgment, salvation. Judgment, salvation. All the time, right next to each other. It's the same here. There will be judgment and salvation, but never one without the other. Very interesting. So in judgment, God says that he'll destroy the wise. Did you hear that thing? He'll confound the intelligence of the intelligent. That'll be awkward, won't it? And probably unexpected if you're so wise that you think you don't need God. He'll put to shame those who trust in Egypt. You want to trust in Egypt? I'm going to put you to shame. He says, I'll destroy Assyria. Well, that's pretty awesome. We're looking forward to that. He's going to judge this mighty nation and destroy them. He's going to break the sinful. Have a listen to this little bit here. Go to chapter 30. Chapter 30. And look at verses 12 to 14 with me. Uh, They're on page 708. Chapter 30 and verses 12 to 14. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This sin, it's going to shatter on you. Interestingly enough, he uses pottery. I think that's a little jab as well. You're just pottery. You want to stand up and deny the potter? Do you know what the potter can do? Wipe you out. Now, that's a vivid thought. We don't need to dwell on it. But here's the thing. It is insanely arrogant for the pot to disown the potter. And if he so chooses, he can shatter the pot any time he wants. In fact, shatter it so finely, it says there, that you won't be able to scoop up a bit of water or move some coals out of the hearth. Now, we don't do that sort of stuff very often. Here's what it's saying. There'll be no curvy bits big enough to pick up water or to scrape the ashes out of your fireplace. It'll be fragments and powder. That is what will be left. You want to deny the potter? Prepare to be shattered. But there's salvation here as well. Salvation that God says he will open blind eyes, that he will take away shame, that he will save Jerusalem, that he will answer, speak, and heal his people. Have a look at how beautiful this is. Now, remember, you've just heard some terrible stuff. And the, the, the Dawkins of this world will say, ah, the Old Testament, full of a wrathful, angry God, right? Rip out that. You might get a little bit of something from Jesus who never existed that's kind of loving and kind, but the rest of it's just this angry, nasty God. I want you to see how complex it is. In the end, we want God to judge sin. We want him to judge sin because injustice can't last till heaven, can it? He must punish it. And yet, the God who punishes sin is also the God who saves. Look at how beautiful these verses are. Uh, Verses 18 and following. So chapter 30, verse 18, page 709, midway down on the left column there. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Oh, hang on, stop. That can't be in the Old Testament, can it? 
I'm being cheeky. Have a look at this. Have a look at this. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. He will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day, Cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash, spread out with fork and shovel. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. The moon will shine like the sun. The sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days, when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he inflicted. That's our God. Just, mighty, awesome, beautiful, compassionate, healing, restoring. It's not either or, it's both. That's our God. So what lifestyle changes do the people of Israel need to make? They've got the disease identified. You've heard what God's plan is, how they need to live in order to be the people that God wants them to be. Have a look at verse 15 of chapter 29. We're going to piece this together as well. How should they live? It says, Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? The first thing that the people of Israel need to change is they need to no longer trust in their ability to hide from God. Give it up. You might be fooling yourself. You might be fooling your family, your work colleagues. Guess what? There's one person, one person who you're not fooling. Give it up. Stop believing that you can hide from God. Second one, chapter 31, you'll need to go over to page 7, oh, it might be 710 actually, come over one more page, 710. Uh, Chapter 31, verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in their great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. What Israel needed to do, secondly, they needed to stop trusting in Egypt. Don't look to their awesome firepower. Don't look to your neighbor to bring army against army. Don't do it. Do you notice what they were not doing there? Have a look at the end. But they were not looking to the Holy One of Israel or seeking help from the Lord. Stop it. 
Third thing the Israelites needed to do, chapter 30 and verse 22, just back a page, verse 22. Here's what they needed to do. When everything, when God brings his graciousness, then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. What did they need to do? They needed to no longer trust in their idols. They needed to no longer trust in your idols. Why do I have an idol in my house? Because it's close, convenient, and visible. Right? I can go to my idol shelf, and there it is. I don't need any faith to see my idol, do I? That's the joy of it. I can get a bigger one or a smaller one. My choice. I can make sure that it has a happy face or a sad face. My choice. I can close the door on my idol if I want to do something that it doesn't approve on. It can't see me anymore. I can open it up and go into the, into the idol cupboard when I want to consult it on my terms. Why idols? Because we want to control God and we want to create him in our size and in our shape. God as the ultimate vending machine. Convenience religion. Get rid of your idols. What does it look like to live right? What's the picture of right living that's held out before the uh, Israelites here? Again, we'll build it up quickly. Uh, have a look at uh, chapter, uh, chapter 30, verse 15. I love this verse. I, I probably could have preached a whole sermon just on this verse. You might have liked that. But uh, nonetheless, this, this I think is, is, a, is a really key verse. Have a look at this. Chapter 30, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. What's to be the ultimate way that Israel is to live? Now they will live in repentance and rest. Repentance and rest. Not striving and restlessness forever unsettled by the threats around, but in repentance, God, we're sorry that we've turned away from you, and rest, we are putting our trust in you. Isaiah 29 and verses 18 to 19. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. The second way we're to live is to listen and rejoice. Don't hide yourself from God's word. Listen. Blind eyes, be open. Deaf ears, be unstopped. Hear the word of the Lord. That's how we'll live rightly. Repentance and rest, listen and rejoice. And thirdly, in verses 27 to 31 of chapter 30, we hear this. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar, the burning anger and dense clouds of smoke, the lips that are full of wrath, and his tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in the sieve of destruction. He places in the jaws of the peoples a bit that leads them astray. And you will sing as in the night... 
you celebrate a holy festival. Your hearts will rejoice as when people paying pipes go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause people to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire, with cloudburst, thunderstorm and hail. The voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria. With his rod, he will strike them down. What's the third way that they need to live? third way they need to live is to await his judgment. You see, we need to defeat Assyria because God doesn't care. He doesn't know that a superpower is coming to wipe us out. That's why we need to go to Egypt. That's why we need to call on our idols. God doesn't care and he's powerless. And what God's saying to his holy people is step back. Wait for the judgment that God will bring. It's not yours. It's his. Await his judgment. Well, that's what it says here in the text. I like that. It's talking to people who were living 700 years before Jesus. That's 2,000 years before us. That's almost 3,000 years ago. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? In light of this, what can we no longer do? What can you and I no longer do if we've heard this word this morning? Well, we can no longer cling to our idols. No longer cling to our idols. Now, I'm going to think out loud for you. What might your idols be? Where might we turn in a desperate situation? Where might we place our hope if not in God? What might our idols be? Maybe they're in the things that can be seen. Maybe in my house. My house is secure. I know it won't get blown over. I've got enough equity in it. It's going to make sure my family's okay. Maybe it's your job. You're trusting in the fact that you're employed and you can meet the needs of your family. You're trusting in what is seen. Let go of the idol and acknowledge that your life is in his hands, not yours. Some of us will be trusting in the seen. Some of us will be trusting in the strong. So around you, there might be someone who is the rock for you. Now, let me say, if you have people who love you and care for you, that is a great thing. When you turn to them above and beyond and instead of your God... They are an idol to you. Don't wish away a helpful family. Don't wish away a supportive friend. Don't wish away a life group that's there for you. Instead, turn away from putting whatever that person is who's strong in your life first before God. Let the idol go. And here's the thing. How will you know if it's an idol? It will terrify you to do it. I couldn't possibly not trust in that. Because it's your idol. So some of us will trust in the seen. Some of us will will cling to the strong. Some of us will trust in the superstitious. And I mean that in the sense of you have a lucky something, you know, lucky pair of underwear you wear to your job interview or something. I did have a lucky pair of socks, but they they wore out. Now, that's that's a laughing matter. But some of us are quite literally putting our hope in the lotto, aren't we? I hope not. But there have to be thousands of millions of people around us who are, aren't there? My way out of this is that I'll get my ticket to freedom eventually, and then everything will be okay. 
Stop clinging to the superstitious. There's no chance you're going to win that. It's just dumb luck. Stop clinging to the addictive. When everything is too much, you turn here. You can't help it. It's just what you do. This is how I find relief. This is my quiet thing. Stop trusting in the addictive. We would love to talk to you if you find yourself in that situation. Stop turning to that private comfort which is destroying you. Trust God. What must we do? Church, here's what I'm saying we must do if we've heard this correctly today. Firstly, we must repent. Now, I, always, I, I want to believe I'm always trusting in God, but you know what? At times, I find out I'm not. When what I, when what I was really trusting in falls over and I realise that I was trusting in it and I find myself on my knees going, please, God, first of all, that's a good thing. But what I've just found is I was trusting in something that wasn't God. Are you with me? When it's taken away and I'm on the floor going, Lord, I have no idea what to do now, I'm showing that just before I was trusting in something that was an idol. We need to repent. We need to say, God, I am sorry. I'm sorry I put things before you. Secondly, we need to rest. The striving that says you are running your life must stop. It's not that you'll kick back on a holiday and never do another day's work. That's not what I'm talking about. The striving that says that you alone are driving this ship needs to stop. You need to learn how to rest in your God who cares for you. Thirdly, you need to restore a vision of God. I'm going to read to you these verses from chapter 29, verse 22. This is what the Lord who redeemed Abraham says to the descendants of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. God will take away your shame. No longer will their faces grow pale. They will see among them their children, the work of their hands. Here's what they'll do. They will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the one of Israel and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. What will happen? you will be restored in your love, respect, and passion for who God really is. See, why do I need an idol? Because I've traded the real God for a fake vision. My God's grumpy and doesn't pay any attention. All right, well, I better get an idol. Look at who God is here. Be restored in your vision of who he truly is. Fourthly, Read. Read the Bible. He's in here. The living and true God is in here. Uh, Here's why it's good to read the Bible. From this reading that uh, Ian brought us from 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Here's the thing. You and I, I hope, believe a message that's foolish. God saves you, not because you're good, but in the midst of your sin, he saves you 
forgives you and makes you his child. The only way you're going to keep believing in a message that foolish is keep being exposed to it. Find it to be true. You want to avoid religion? Don't trust in yourself. Trust in the foolish message that God offers salvation to people like you and I. So what might we do next? I'm going to finish on this. It says at the end, chapter 31, verse 6 and 7, Return, you Israelites, to the one you so greatly revolted against. Isn't that great? Just come back. Return, Israel, to the one you so greatly revolted against. For in that day, every one of you will reject idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. It'll be obvious. Dump your junk. Pick up the precious living God. And so here's my practical thing. This is scrawled out in my left hand. Why don't you go home and make a list? I often find myself turning to trust in. Write them down. These could be, these can be, I might be tempted to have these things as my idols. God, help me to screw them up and throw them away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you care desperately about where our heart's ultimate loyalty is. You will judge the rebellious children. You'll smash them. But you long not to. Father, would you help us give up the things our hands so readily cling to? Help us to repent and turn from them. Restore in us, Father, a vision of who you are. Refresh us in that, that the trade of throwing away our idols will be done joyfully and with great confidence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.